No doubt that the healthcare sector continues to battle surging cybersecurity incidents ranging from phishing to ransomware attacks. What should entities be doing to improve their defense against these assaults? I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor of Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Brian Selfridge, who leads consulting firm Metatologies, IT risk management practice. Brian is also the former CISO of New Jersey-based healthcare provider, Care. Brian will be discussing the cyberstorm facing healthcare entities and what they need to do to improve their ability to fend off these threats. So Brian, for starters, based on what you see, what are healthcare entities doing wrong or neglecting to do with their security that's leaving them most vulnerable to the kinds of cyber threats we've been seeing, including ransomware? I think one of the big areas that folks are are missing the mark on when it comes to kind of building out information security programs in healthcare, you know, at the moment is getting a little bit caught up chasing some of the more higher profile types of threats and attacks that are happening. While all means we should certainly pay a lot of attention to those. So that's the the wanna cries or the petches or the the heart bleed, whatever the, the flavor of the moment is, we certainly should be paying attention to those. However, um, I think sometimes we, we get a little bit of a false sense of security, no pun intended, that by addressing those as they pop up and almost like whack-a-mole, we, we go say, yep, we go got it, we fix that, and then we move on and, and continue to kind of lack investments in the security program overall. I think I think that's part of the challenge. And the big piece being neglected there, it, it kind of left unsaid, is really the fundamentals around building a solid information security program. So building a program based on Information security standards, for example, like HITRUST or NIST, as opposed to just looking at security as as a compliance exercise and and looking at it only from a HIPAA perspective. So getting some of those fundamentals done, building a program, making sure the, the access controls, for example, are solid, making sure that we're scanning and patching our systems on a regular basis, which sounds straightforward, but is, is surprisingly neglected in the, the rigor and structure that we would expect to see in, in other industries, for example, or really making sure that we're paying attention to those foundational aspects. So I think that's really some of the big keys that, that we're kind of missing the bow on the moment. So, Brian, you mentioned access management controls, and as we know, we see a lot of phishing attacks and social engineering sorts of attacks as well as business email compromises and ransomware that gets in through a phishing attack at healthcare entities. So when it comes to ID and access management controls, where do you see the greatest room for improvement by healthcare entities? What are they doing wrong? What should they be doing? I think with respect to access controls specifically, it's it's a fundamental concept that we're struggling with that the concept hasn't changed and the objective hasn't changed, and that is providing minimum necessary access to systems and, and, and applications. That concept has always been around. HIPAA drives it. Everybody says that, um, but healthcare, for some reason, uh, actually for lots of reasons, has real trouble kind of achieving that. Part of that has to do with the proliferation of the number of applications and assets and just all the moving pieces in the environment and making sure that there's someone or some way 
made technologically to make sure that access is limited, um, as opposed to just giving folks kind of overly broad access. And, and a prime example of this is, on a term technical perspective, is local administrative rights. And what I mean by that is a lot of healthcare entities will, will give every single end user the administrative access on their local workstation or their laptop to be able to install programs or make changes or make edits. And very often they don't need that. That's above and beyond kind of their job duties. And that's done in the interest of expediting the installation of programs, making sure things are quote unquote working effectively. Um, but what it also does is it opens up a whole trove of possibility for a lot of the malware, ransomware attacks that kind of hit from a technical perspective, rely on the ability of those end users to have that elevated level of access. So I think on the end user perspective, those local administrative rights and having them overly broad and overly excessive are a big part of the problem. And then the same thing goes from an IT perspective. Very often there's a lot of accounts and individuals with very high privileged access that have the quote unquote keys to the kingdom. And those folks, perhaps as part of their job duties, don't need that level of access for everything they do, or maybe they only need it at certain times. And so there are strategies out there to kind of reduce the footprint of individuals that have administrative level access or provide and or provide ways for having accounts that they can only use that access when they need it. And there's kind of some controls around it, as opposed to just having that be their day-to-day account that they use. So a lot of different ways to shape this one, but kind of excessive access controls are still a big part of the problem. Now, you mentioned some of the practices that get organizations into trouble with access management, you know, giving, again, like you've said, the administrative rights to people maybe who should not have it. Are there any promising authentication or access management technologies that you think healthcare entities might be overlooking that could help them avoid some of these pitfalls? Certainly, there are some advances in the works or available from an authentication standpoint and access control. I'll name a few, but we still have a long way to go, so I want to put a caveat on that. So we're still largely dependent on passwords for the majority of systems that store or access patient information, and that's, and that's a big problem because we know passwords are relatively easy to break. People create ones that are easy to remember and therefore easy to guess. That's a big problem, but particularly in the provider setting, there are technologies like tap and go type tap technologies or improvider some of the, there's a there's a ton of vendors i don't need to pick on a particular vendor but where we start enabling providers to be able to rely on things like having a physical access badge and a pin or a pin code or having something that they can just walk up to the workstation that senses their proximity, knows who they are, logs them into the things they need to get into such that they don't have to rely on that password that could be used maliciously by someone else in other settings. So that's one example. The other emerging area is multi-factor or two-factor authentication. And many folks will recognize this as kind of what you use to log into many of your banking applications or other applications that require you to get a text message to your phone that has a couple extra digits you have to log in in addition to your password. That technology goes a very long way towards stopping a large number of attacks that are purely password-based. And this is speaking from a perspective of my firm as a hacking, ethical hacking and penetration testing firm, which means we pretend to be the bad guys more often than not. We're able to break in and provide ways to protect against that. But very often we find organizations that aren't using some of these technologies, multi-factor authentication, or don't have strong passwords, aren't resetting them frequently, all those typical password management things, or have generic accounts in use. Um, Those are the ones that we're able to break into very often in a matter of just a few hours. 
from the external internet or from the internal environment. So, you know, healthcare is tricky because we've got a lot of accounts, we've got a lot of applications, we have open access to our environments, right? Everybody comes in, patients, visitors into the building. Um, we've got a lot of challenges and, and access control is getting better in terms of the technologies, but I ultimately think that we still need some more innovation to get to where we're not relying on single factor passwords as a predominant authentication mechanism. Now, Brian, as we know, patient privacy is always a big focus when it comes to data breaches involving protected health information. But what about patient harm? Do you think patients are already being impacted physically by security incidents and that we're either not hearing about it or we're not realizing it yet? And why? I believe, yes, there are tangible harms happening at present based on information security lapses to patients. However, I also believe that there's a lot more potential that we are ducking some bullets these days. And and let me explain that in terms of more critical harm to our patients in the long run. So in terms of the harm that's happening today, it's primarily more of a business kind of harm. So folks having longer wait times and not getting access to the timeliness of care that they should because the hospital or health system is dealing with a ransomware outbreak where all their systems are locked up, for example. That's harmful in the sense that you've got folks that need to be seen and treated and and are getting delays in that care. And any delays in care could potentially produce harmful outcomes that that probably aren't very easy to measure on the aggregate in the industry. So we have those types of situations or we have situations where folks are being treated and the information that they, uh, about their care is not available readily to to the providers. So for example, if you have some very serious allergies to certain medications and for some reason your latest record isn't available or isn't being able to communicate it because of security incident, that could potentially impact impact patient care. But I, I think the bigger story and the bigger concern, at least from, from my perspective, is more around things like medical devices where we have some of the weakest security controls of any asset types in healthcare, but maybe in in many industries in terms of devices that are old, outdated, either unable to be updated, or there's a lack of coordination with all the parties that need to get together to figure out how to get those devices secured. And by virtue of that, we have these very vulnerable devices that are susceptible to a lot of the attacks that we see out there from malware and ransomware hacking attacks. And the concern there is that because they're so vulnerable, because they're so accessible, and they're becoming increasingly networked and and becoming increasingly directly impactful to patients' physical well-being, patient safety, that if one of those devices or more of those devices, either across an environment or, or in a single instance, ceases to function correctly or altogether at a critical juncture, then we have very real patient safety implications. And with even with WannaCry and Petya and these things that came out, the ransomware attacks recently, we did see some facilities in the UK and elsewhere reporting that their medical devices were getting locked up. And so I think we're, we're dancing all around the potential for kind of a sentinel event related to an information security lapse to a medical device that causes patient harm, that causes us all to to get our act together a little more quickly than we are as an industry. Folks are starting to pay attention to that particular issue, but but it's not moving that fast in terms of actually making the changes that we need to, to protect those devices in particular. And Brian, when it comes to medical devices, where are the healthcare entities falling short in terms of protecting these devices from attack? And what about the manufacturers? Where are they falling short and what should be done about it? 
I'll start with the good news, and I, I don't want this to be all doom and gloom because that's not painting a you know a full picture. The good news is there's more awareness around medical device insecurities than there ever has been before. I mean, awareness at the the board level, the executive level, the IT level, biomed and clinical engineering. Folks are starting to understand that this is an issue and starting to get a handle on the, the severity of it conceptually. So that's good news. I think that's a starting point, um, just in understanding the problem. Where we're falling short is our speed to address the issue. Some organizations are starting to do targeted medical device risk assessments, for example, and really looking at the ecosystem of the problem, ranging from issues around technical security, so we're we're not patching our devices for known security issues, um, so even if we know about it, we're not fixing them, uh, making sure we have antivirus and anti-malware in place. But beyond the technical stuff, there's a whole lot more that has to happen to secure these devices, things like understanding accurate asset inventories of where our devices are and what types of applications and programs are running on them and what weaknesses might they have. The organizations are falling short in, in having accurate and thorough asset inventories of their medical devices. They're falling short on the communication that needs to happen between a variety of stakeholders. And this includes the medical device manufacturers, making sure that there are processes in place not only to assess the security of new devices that you're buying, but also to assess the security of legacy devices. Medical devices are often meant to be in, in running for 10, 15, 20 years sometimes. And if they're not updated for security updates or not reviewed for security, then we're not having those conversations with the medical device vendors on how we fix that. We're not having strong communication across IT, information security, compliance, biomedical and clinical engineering, purchasing and procurement, legal. All these folks have a a piece in fixing this challenge. Organizations are not doing a great job at, at kind of breaking down those boundaries and having the conversation about how we work on that together. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of other technical things we can be doing, like network, isolating these devices on the network and things. But I, I think those are some of the areas that we need to get into moving from not only understanding the issue and assessing where we are, but actually building out operational programs and governance and infrastructure to to make sure that we're treating this like an ongoing security program, something needs to be addressed over time as opposed to a, a kind of smaller niche concern relative to everything else we have to worry about. And finally, Brian, very briefly, if there's one emerging cyber threat that you think is most disturbing that healthcare entities aren't paying enough attention to right now, what is that one threat? There are certainly a host of threats that we're aware of and are paying attention to. Ransomware, hackers, viruses. I think that's good and appropriate. I would say the one area that is starting to get more attention but is not getting as much movement in terms of threat is the exposure that the industry has of sharing large volumes of patient information with a wide range of third-party vendors and providers. We have a lot of innovation going on in healthcare. There's startups left and right to do wonderful things around data analytics and healthcare and patient population management and claims processing and all kinds of wonderful new ways of providing better and more efficient care. However, they almost all involve getting a copy of the patient details in full volume. And what that means is healthcare organizations and providers are sharing that information in volumes far more than we, we've ever seen historically. And the security protections around those vendors on the aggregate is not very strong. We only have something like 25% of the vendors that are taking information have a security certification, for example. And so having worked with 
providers, having worked with payers, having worked with a lot of these same vendors and business associates, I know that there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of exposure that I think that organizations may understand conceptually, but don't have the visibility to know specifically which vendors pose the most risk and how to go about prioritizing getting those vendors into compliance, either before sharing information with them, during or after. And that's an area that I think is going to take over the risk profile in healthcare security in the next several years if it isn't already headed in that direction. Thanks, Brian. I've been speaking to Brian Selfridge. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.